Hello, you're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. I'm Tim Lovelace, professor of law and the John Hope Franklin Research Scholar. This episode has been selected from our recent Race and the Law course and speaker series. It features a discussion with Ian Haney Lopez, a racial justice scholar, and the Chief Justice Earl Warren, Professor of Public Law at the University of California, Berkeley. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, Professor Haney Lopez, for joining us. Can you talk to us about what it means that race is socially constructed and then uh, the role that law plays in that social construction? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's actually a very timely question. Often the social construction of race is talked about as if race was socially constructed a long time ago. And it makes sense conceptually, um, partly because the, the distant past, it's easier to see social processes that one is not oneself in, enmeshed in. And you can look to the past and you can say, okay, colonialism, the sort of creation of a white identity, a black identity, a red identity, and then a Mexican and a yellow identity. You can see that uh, in the 1600s, for example. But the question of the social construction of race, I think, is just incredibly timely because we're right now in the midst of race being socially constructed. What we're seeing is a tremendous push to get people to think of themselves as white, or even more broadly, to get people to think that their status depends on a claim of whiteness, right? And I'm using whiteness as opposed to white to get away quite, like the one conversation that social construction raises the categorical boundaries, the taxonomies, who's, who's white, um, what are the boundaries of that? But in some ways, that can be a misleading conversation because it's the boundaries aren't as important as the supposed content of these identities. And that's what we talk about when we start talking about whiteness. There's this tremendous push to encourage people to, to think of their status being dependent upon attributes associated with whiteness. What are those attributes? Certainly falling within the white category is helpful, being of European descent, for example, but not necessary because ultimately the categories of whiteness and the qualities of whiteness, and you'll recognize some of these terms, are a function of whether one is hardworking or lazy, a taxpayer um, or a welfare queen, a law-abiding citizen who supports law and order, or a criminal, a gangbanger, an illegal alien, a Muslim terrorist, or an anarchist, right? Like if what you're hearing in this language of whiteness is the language of political discourse today, that's not an accident. Political discourse today coming from the right is pushing people to deepen their belief that there are in fact fundamental divisions in our society that correlate to race and that those divisions say an awful lot about who one is in society, whether one deserves esteem, or whether one is instead appropriately viewed as a threat. Ian, this is Keith. Just on this last point that you're making, that there's a push from the right for people to think that race matters, at least as I understood it. But that's also a claim of the crits as well. Yeah. So it would seem to me then that, that the claim would be both right and crit, think that race matters and that it's socially constructed, perhaps. 
And if that's true, what are the mechanisms by which it is socially constructed? And what are the differences then between the crits and the right? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I think that the race crits, counting myself as a race crit, we've been having a conversation with a different set of white folks, right? We've been having a conversation with the moderate slash centrist slash liberal white folk, as opposed to the conversation with the reactionary white folks. And so let me come back to the reactionary white folks for a second, just because, you know, in order to make a distinction between the race crit position that race matters and the sort of reactionary position that race matters, we need to think about the function of race. What is the work that race is doing? So on the reactionary side, starting in the 1960s, uh, starting with, you know, Barry Goldwater, you had a sense among economic and political elites that they could use racial anxiety to drive hostility towards New Deal government, right? And I want to be super crystal clear about this. The main hostility for someone like Barry Goldwater was hostility toward a New Deal style government that taxed the rich, redistributed wealth downward, regulated the marketplace, supported unions, right? All of that, like Barry Goldwater was like, that's destroying society. Whether New Deal government was destroying society, the reactionary, the economic royalists, let's say, they'd lost that argument. They lost that argument. Both Democrats and Republicans had come to a general consensus that the market should be regulated. You know, radical idea that government in the marketplace should work for the vast majority of Americans. And Barry Goldwater sitting out there at the margin saying, how do I break that consensus? And his answer was, I stimulate race hatred and race fear and race prejudice. So what you have is a class decision to attack the New Deal using a race weapon, racial anxiety being created by the civil rights movement. And that decision is not a decision that fully sees 2020 and Donald Trump, right? So it's not a like conspiracy and the like, I know how we can do this over the next 60 years, but it is a decision that starts a practice of using racial resentment to attack New Deal government, to attack a broad democratic coalition. And that the success of that incrementally leads, you know, one, one sort of racial class billionaire entrepreneur after another to build on each other. And you go through Reagan and you go through Gingrich and uh, Mitt Romney. And you, okay. So then you end up with um, Donald Trump. But we can talk about that succession. It was really important to understand. There's a big push by some of the most powerful, some of the wealthiest factions in this country to socially build, to socially deepen the idea that races are real and define our fates and also tell us who's esteemed and who's a threat and who belongs. Okay. Meanwhile, liberals have been saying, indeed, bamboozled by the right, liberals have been saying, oh, appropriate race etiquette is to be colorblind. We should not talk about race. And if we just don't talk about race, everything's going to be great. And now to be super clear about this, Democrats in 1970 adopt a strategy of being colorblind. That is adopt a strategy of backing away from civil rights and not talking too much about racial justice. Right? The Democrats in the main, with exceptions like, like Jesse Jackson, but Democrats in the main, you think about like Jimmy Carter, certainly Bill Clinton, Joe Biden in the 70s and the 80s, they back away from civil rights. Why do they do that? 
because they knew they they knew that civil rights was being weaponized against them that it was that civil rights was be support for civil rights was being used was being weaponized was being used to create white antipathy towards the democratic party so centrist whites liberal whites say we're going to be colorblind and that's the way forward and this to this is to Barack Obama. Barack Obama is a president who talks the least about race since any president since since FDR. Because Barack Obama is like, I know that if I talk about race, it's just going to engender hostility. So I'm going to be post-racial. And post-racial is liberal version of colorblindness. Against that, race crits have been saying, y'all are out of your minds. We can't get past racism. If we don't talk about it, indeed not talking about it naturalizes it and leaves all of this racist rhetoric, all of this racial demagoguery, all this fear mongering unanswered. We must talk about what's actually happening in terms of race in our country. But notice the purpose. The purpose is an egalitarian one, an emancipatory one, indeed one that I think at its best is aimed at pushing us past the idea that race is a fundamental division in human society and toward the conclusion of a shared humanity, uh, right? That, that, like, that, that, like that's the goal. Now, one question we could ask is, is this the best way to go about it at this point? No, this, this, is, this, is, this is great. This is great. I mean, I, I really do love um, your engagement with the left and the right here in terms of how we think about race and conceptualize race and law and politics. 2020 presidential election was obviously explosive for many different reasons. One of the things to think about is that more than 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. And most of those Americans, the overwhelming majority of those Americans would not say that they were racist, right? And, but we know Donald Trump's race history, right? So degrading Mexicans, what most people call the Muslim ban, his engagement with the Proud Boys in Charlottesville, et cetera, et cetera. How do we reckon with this and our dog whistles? So you've written a lot about dog whistles, right? And the dog whistles that are operating, are these here to stay? They've been a valuable sort of electoral strategy. Well, they're certainly here to stay if Democrats don't figure out how to respond to them. So absolutely. I mean, it's, it's um, so let's back up. I really like the question, and I think that it's, you know, that, that you're framing the question in terms of actually what are very important insights into political dynamics that many progressives simply get wrong from the outset, right? So, so you're saying, hey, 70 million people, but most of them don't think that they're racist. And I think that's really important. Survey data from 2017 showed that somewhere between two and four percent of whites endorsed the Ku Klux Klan and its beliefs, and that that number doubled among Trump supporters. So we're talking four to eight percent. That's a huge number. But a lot of progressives tend to tend to condemn all Trump voters as bigots. Tend to have a, a mental view of Trump voters as if they're conscious Klan members, even if they're closeted and won't admit it. Right, and that's just wrong. That's not what's happening. I think it's fair to say. 90% plus of Trump voters would genuinely believe themselves not only to not be racist, but to be against racism, right? that they think that racism is a moral wrong. And so then from the point of view of critics of Trumpism and Trump voters, I think it's also fair to say Trump is campaigning on racist themes. I don't mean to say he's not racist. I think he is racist. I think he's, you know, I would describe him as a strategic racist. 
He's pushing people to think in racist terms as a strategy to rile them up and to get them to vote for him and to get them to send him money. And he's like this monumental racist grifter. Yeah. So I'm happy to call him racist in that sense. But racism takes many different forms. And I think that that Trump is very careful to promote a style of racism that simultaneously trigger deeply internalized racist stereotypes and allows people to deny that they're racist. And that's the dog whistle, right? And I think when we say dog whistle, a lot of people are like code, you know, but it's like, yeah, just understanding race, a dog whistle as code is the most boring possible understanding of the term. Welfare queen or illegal alien. Those are dog whistles. They're code. Okay, got that. What's important about them? They're designed to trigger deeply internalized racist stereotypes about Black people as lazy, undeserving, and thieving, about Latinos as inherently criminal and invaders. They trigger those sorts of racist stereotypes. They would have no political power or very little political power without triggering those racist stereotypes. But simultaneously, people can say to themselves, of course I oppose welfare queens. No one should rip off the system. Of course I oppose illegal aliens. People should follow the rules. And they can say to themselves, I support cracking down on these bad people, not because I'm racist. In fact, I'm against racism. It's simply common sense that we should stop welfare queens from ripping off the system, that we should stop illegal aliens from crossing our borders without being checked, right? That's the dog whistle. Simultaneously trigger, it draws its power from internalized racist stereotypes, but is fashioned in a way that allows people to deny that this is, that, that, that it's racism that's informing their views. This gets to the idea that, or this gets to the insight that most Americans have split minds on race. Most of us, almost all of us, you know, all of you good folks on, on this Zoom call, you're simultaneously deeply committed to fighting racism and susceptible to racist stereotypes. You just, we are. I mean, this is like, if you grew up in this society, we are. And I think that, I think most of us recognize that dynamic and do a lot of work to say, oh, there's that racist stereotype coming up again. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I got to deal with that. Or that one caught me by surprise. But, you know, whether you're white or a person of color, we've internalized this, this awful poison. It's in us, right? And so we need to get people to a position in which they emphasize their ideals, their anti-racist commitments, their pro-solidarity beliefs, their desire for a racially egalitarian society while guarding against this constant sort of uh, insinuation of racist stereotypes in their thinking and in their behavior and their social relations with others. And now just to come, just to come back to, to the question, just to bring it back to the question, it's very hard to strip the power from dog whistles from these terms if all you do is call them racist precisely because people don't believe they're being racist. That's the pivot that I'm urging, a pivot that allows us to give people a way forward, a way to see that they themselves have their own interest 
in embracing racial solidarity that is different from defending themselves against the charge of being closet racist or or bamboozled by racism. Okay, Raquel and Ryan, and then we'll be followed by Andrea and Jordan. Hi, Professor Lopez. Um, thank you so much for coming today. I thought your article was really interesting. One thing I was hoping that maybe you could elaborate more on is your point that race presented as ethnicity tends to fault minorities for their own situation, mm -hmm. particularly in connection to Latinx Americans, who I always understood couldn't be identified um, racially as easily. And then also kind of in connection with that more generally, um, how do you think we could best move forward now in reaching equality when so much of our society still does subscribe to the ideas um, of colorblindness and white victimization and kind of what you were just speaking of just now? And I had a couple of questions. So first of all, your uh, history in the chapter you read shows cycles where liberal ideas about race are co-opted by conservatives in a way that undermines the intent that they were made with originally. Um, and this has played out recently in All Lives Matter and All Lives Matter response to the Black Lives Matter movement. And is this something that's fated to happen with popular liberal movements? Or are there ways that liberal movements can protect themselves from this reframing? And one thing I'm thinking about based on our conversation that we had in this group last week is focusing on institutional problems like abolition of prisons rather than on race. And then also, I'm just curious about the way that these sort of dynamics have changed over the Trump era. I think you've touched on that a bit already. These are great questions. And, and luckily, they're sort of, they're, they're very precise, uh, partly because of the scope of them. To think through the language of ethnicity, notice that the language of ethnicity and, and the language of dog whistling are really similar. And the reason they're similar is because what the right did in order to pretend to, to comply with the sort of civil rights insight that racism is a moral wrong, they shifted from the language of biology to the language of culture. And they said, you know, the problem isn't black people. The problem is lazy thieving people. The problem isn't brown people. The problem is illegal people who invade our country and don't respect our rights and, and rape people when they get here. Right. And so, uh, you know, there's this sort of this move that tried that the right tried to disaggregate, indeed successfully did disaggregate biology and behavior and said, as long as we don't mention skin color, as long as we don't use a racial epithet, it's not racism anymore. But of course, the terms, the, the terms in which they describe the culture of people of color were the old racist terms. And so it's very important to, to sort of hold in mind that racism as an ideology did the vast bulk of its work by describing people in terms of behavior and attribute and civilization. And the bi biological part of it was merely the way in which the substance was attributed to nature rather than to society and was supposedly made visible by nature. But it was never important that some people had black skin or white skin in and of itself. It was important in terms of what that skin color was supposed to represent about the underlying characteristics and temperaments of the people, right? So this is this, this very dangerous move when, when people start talking about ethnicity or responding in terms of, of ethnicity. You know, is our vocabulary of culture simply a replay of, of racist stereotypes, but now with no awareness of, you know, no ability to talk about the racism? Coming to this idea of liberal ideas being co-opted, of course, and that's never going to go away. I, right, so, so the ideas are constantly being contested, co-opted, reinvented, contested, co-opted, right? There's always that, that, that sort of, um, that continuing process. How can progressives guard against that? I think it's a mistake to say, let's focus on concrete 
proposals or reforms. And, and the reason it's a mistake is because ultimately what we're, what we're debating here is a vision for the good society in which our own families are protected and esteemed. And if that's the conversation, then conversations about concrete proposals are simply too abstract and too hard to understand. If you say $15 an hour wage for everyone, and a lot of progressives want to say, and that's how we're going to build this coalition. But somebody else is responding by saying, you know, there are people who built this country and they deserve to be here. And there are people who are invading and they're takers. And that $15 a wage thing, that's going to take away from the people who built this country and the people who deserve and the people who belong. And take away from the greatness of this country. Give it to people who are undeserving and a threat and are lazy and don't deserve it. You're going to lose that argument because you haven't addressed the fundamental story of what is a good society? Who are we to each other? How do we belong? Where's the real threat come from? I think the, the better advice for progressives is have right, engage in a sort of a constant process of self-reflection and self-criticism. What are we trying to achieve? What are our strategies for getting there? Is our strategy still helping us? Is this language the best way forward? I really think of Angela Harris in her article um, on, on essentialism. I just think was just so clear about this at the end of her article where she's like, we're constantly at risk of finding our language, trapping our own imagination and being hijacked and turned against us. And that doesn't mean we give up. It means that we constantly engage in this process of self-reflection, really pushing ourselves. And in fact, I'm, you know, this class is like, I'm sure designed to do this to teach you the skills you need to constantly push yourself and ask yourself, what am I really trying to achieve here? What's my ultimate goal? What's my strategy for getting there? You know, how successfully are the approaches that I've been using working? That has to be built into the DNA of social change agents. I interested, I was really interested in your viewpoint on white victimhood. And I'm interested to hear how you think it has evolved. I mean, if we look at the past four years, especially the past four months and intensely this summer. So my question is, how can white people who lean into their ethnicities as means of disassociating themselves from a white majority work internally within their communities to dismantle colorblindness and confront the ways in which they contribute to social constructions of race. That was very convoluted. So if you need me to repeat it. Oh, no, I got to. it. I got it. I think it's Perfect. another great question. Thank you. These are two different variants for how whites can engage with being white. They're being pushed by the right. And by the right, I mean, the GOP, but the GOP is almost a minor player now compared to the force of the reactionary propaganda machine that's been created through Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, Laura Ingram, um, Alex Jones, the, you know, these different websites, and also the right wing think tanks. And also, and this is really important, uh, the Mercers, the Murdochs, the Koch brothers, there's literally billions of dollars flowing into the creation of propaganda to convince white people that the biggest threat in their lives comes from non-white people, that their very whiteness establishes a threatened, victimized identity. They're constantly being told this, to be perfectly clear about this, the billionaires want white people to think the biggest threat in their lives comes from their neighbors of different colors rather than from the billionaires who are actually siphoning the vast amounts of wealth upwards. And so this is, this is their strategy. So Rush Limbaugh, for example, constantly, or Tucker Carlson, they are making millions, shilling for billionaires by promoting socially destructive 
race hatred. That's their business model. Promote race hatred, make millions. Part of their story is, hey, every time some progressive person talks about race or racial justice or white privilege or you know critical race theory this is the source of the attack on critical race theory. What's really animating it is hate whitey, right? And they even use this phrase, they hate whitey, they want to get whitey, they think of you as whitey, you're the real victim, right? This is a strategy. If when white think of themselves in terms of a white identity that is imperiled, that their families are at risk, that their children are at risk, that the country is no longer a safe place for them, they go buy guns. They're encouraged to do that, right? This is this is also the NRA message. Society's turned against you. Government supports people of color. It keeps promoting integration. It won't talk honestly about the threat to white folks. Donald Trump is the only, he may lie tens of thousands of times, but he tells the truth about the threat to white, right? This, this is what's happening for one section of white folks. This other business of ethnicity, there's also a move among many whites to say, I don't want to be white. I, I don't I don't I don't want to be part of the oppressor class. I don't want to be blamed. I don't want to be guilty. Uh, I don't want to be guilt tripped. So you get moves like I've never thought of myself as right white. I'm really you know proud of my Irish heritage, my Italian heritage, my Jewish heritage. Um, but we never talked about being white. There's a sort of a color blindness and then an ethnic language that's an alternative. You know, there's this a sort of a a repudiation of the idea that whites exist as a dominant caste in society, right? And it's a very defensive move. What can we do about these? Here's what we should not do. Here's what does not work. Turning around and leading, leading with a racial justice equity frame that says, you know what, white racism is pervasive, there's systemic racism, white people are advantaged, white people need to deal with white privilege, white people are guilty, and white people are the problem. Because you can carry a few white folks, some of you in this class are probably like comfortable with that language. If you're part of, for, for example, surge showing up for racial justice, you're comfortable with that language. But it's been a lot of work, it's been a lot of struggle, it's been a lot of turmoil. Maybe you've read White Fragility and you've kind of worked through the pain of all of this. But, and this is, I think, one of Derek Bell's clearest insights, you will not carry nearly the majority of white folks with this. And here's another insight that I don't think Bell really recognized, but, but that I was really hit with when I started doing focus groups. You can't even carry the majority of people of color with this. You cannot carry, we, we racial justice folks do so much work because there's so much resistance to, to accepting the idea that we live in a race stratified society in which whites are the, are the problem and people of color, our lives are truncated by white racism at every turn. It's an enormously heavy lift. And this is where I, it's like becomes this pivot. Lead with solidarity as the argument for equity. I'm not, to be clear, I'm not saying replace equity with solidarity. I'm saying lead with solidarity as the explanation for equity. In other words, say to folks, including people of color, we live in a society rigged for the rich and their primary weapon against this is social division. That social division takes the form of encouraging racism, encouraging patriarchy, encouraging homophobia, encouraging religious bigotry. But the common denominator is the wealthy rig the system when we fight each other. And the only obvious solution is we build bridges across different. We create a multiracial movement which recognizes our shared humanity. And you know what? That multiracial movement can't be a multiracial movement in name. It's got to be genuinely egalitarian. And genuine egalitarian movement takes care of people in the different situations in which they've been put by this society. It repairs 
the harms of racism. It repairs the harms of patriarchy and the harms of homophobia, partly because it's the right thing to do, mainly because none of our families are safe against the ravages of the very rich unless we build those bridges. And notice, I just, just I'll, I'll, I'll stop here, but notice, we pay all the time, none of us are free until we're all free, da 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 We never explain why. And we don't explain why because we don't actually have a story of why that is. Instead, it's sort of, this is a moral claim. Even James Baldwin, a lot of his writing about like the destruction of racism on white people was in a moral frame. White people are destroyed morally when they're racist. Maybe, but a lot of them in focus groups feel actually pretty confident that they're better off with racism as the existing system and that affirmative action integration takes something from them. This is a story that says to people, you want to take care of your family? I don't care whether you think you're white or you think you're black or brown. The real threat in your to your family comes from the very rich who are running the economy and government for themselves. And their main weapon is social division, is shattering social solidarity. And the only effective response is building social solidarity, and that requires equity, right? So you lead with solidarity and then use that to explain equity, including things like reparation, not simply and not primarily as a moral debt, because that emphasizes this, you know, white people are the problem, da 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 Equity as a necessary step to the social solidarity that alone can get our society back from the very rich. And I have in mind things like the $15 a wage. Um, I have in mind things like um, um, uh, affordable health care, but frankly, also things like the Green New Deal and making sure the government does something about climate collapse. Why won't government do anything about climate collapse? Because it's working for the Koch brothers. And how are the Koch brothers winning power? They're getting folks elected by funding racial hatred. You want to disempower the largest privately held petrochemical industry in the world? Build racial solidarity, right? That's the argument. Hi, Professor. I know you've talked about some solutions, but I was wondering, there was a statistic that you mentioned that more than half of whites thought that discrimination against their race was a big issue. So I was wondering what would be some solutions to fighting this narrative? Hi, and I think we've generally seen, and this is like a very broad generalization, we've generally seen some white people have become more comfortable with the idea that systemic racism is responsible for many of the racial inequalities we see today. So given that, how do we avoid turning the idea that racism has harmed and continues to harm Black people into a new type of dog whistle? And I think specifically, while this premise might seem innocuous, does the conscious rejection of colorblindness by white people that results in white guilt and white pity pose a more subtle form of racism kind of going forward? Hi, Professor. Um, so I'm wondering about the role of our courts and how they intersect with racism and other social hierarchies and whether our judicial system and processes is currently constituted can sustain the sort of change and reckoning that's perhaps needed. Great questions. To start with the first, people in this country are being encouraged to see themselves as victimized by other people different from them in terms of race, right? And, and I use that kind of that weird formulation to say white victimization, because I really want to emphasize, again, race is being socially constructed right now. Nobody's white in this sort of outright, like there is no white victimization and like there's white people being victimized. There's an ideology that says, think of yourself as white and victimized by non-white people. And that is being promoted right now. How do you break people out of that frame? You tell a compelling story in which they can see where the real threat in their lives comes from and a story in which they can also feel good about themselves. This is huge. 
People do not want to be the problem. They don't want to be the enemy. They want to be the, I have actually been talking to Hollywood people. So pardon me if I go to, as I go to these Hollywood terms, people want to see themselves in the hero of the story. They right. And so you need to tell a story that says, yeah, you're victimized. All right. But you're victimized by Donald Trump, who's a racist grifter. And his scam is to lie to you about your neighbors while he laughs all the way to the bank. He thinks you're a dupe. But the truth is, you're a hero here because you are going to build power with your neighbors. You're going to deal with all that racist BS that you've internalized. You're going to do the hard work of building a truly egalitarian movement. And that society is going to provide the best possible life for your children and the children of your neighbors, whatever color they are, right? That, that, that's the move to really say, where does victimization come from? How can you be a hero as you fight this and build power with others? And the next question, are white shifting towards systemic racism? Over the summer with the protests over George Floyd, there were big public opinion shifts. So A, encouraging, absolutely. We've never seen that sort of that, th those numbers in terms of white people saying, yeah, systemic racism is a problem. I also think Joe Biden inaugural address, naming systemic racism, that's huge. And, and these are genuine improvements, but there's reason to worry that these improvements might be thinner than they at first seem. People understand that systemic racism and endorsing systemic racism is a good way of saying, I hate Trump and I think he's a jerk. And I think that there's this sort of partisanship and there's partisan signaling that's going on. But I think that if you pushed a little bit more deeply, how do people conceptualize systemic racism? What do they think it actually means? How do they, how do they think it might have advantaged them in their lives? What obligations do they think they have to dismantle the systemic racism, the systems that have privileged them? That's going to be a pretty thin commitment. But I'm not worried about conversations about white privilege or white guilt being a new form of racism. You know, I am worried a little bit about what we might call white solipsism, where sort of white people are putting themselves at the center of the story of race. That's always a risk. I mentioned a surge showing up for racial justice. I think if people want to join surge, I think that that's awesome. I mean, I do think there's a tremendous amount of work that white folks have to do with like how race has worked in their lives. And, and, and it's hard. And a group like surge is helpful. My reservation is I don't believe that that's an effective route to significant social change, to real advances in building a multiracial working class movement that can actually address both economic inequality and substantially move us forward towards racial justice, right? I think that the left has kind of trapped itself into a position in which we don't actually believe we can create substantial progress towards racial justice for communities of color. And again, to go back to Derek Bell, right? Racism is a permanent feature of our society, temporary peaks of progress sliding into irrelevance. Why do we think that? Because we're drawing on a model of racism that says racism is fundamentally white people against people of color. That's point number one. Point number two, white people continue to have disproportionate power, much, much more than people of color have. Point number three, white people are not going to give up the privileges that they have. And why would they? And they hold all the power so we can't actually change anything. So point number four, what can we do? Speak truth to power and condemn white people. Not change them and not do a whole lot for racial justice, but at least we can speak truth to power. This is the way, this was me for 20 years, right? If, especially if you read my early work, basically I just spent my time condemning white people because in my mind, I was like, there is no clear promising route towards racial justice for communities of color because white people are advantaged by racism and continue to hold most of the power in this society. And the big pivot here is to say, 
what if we go back to really take seriously this idea that race is socially constituted, who's doing it, who profits from it, how are they funding it, how are they promoting it, what does this mean? And what it means is, and my, my shorthand for this is racism is a class weapon, right? Another, you know, a fancier version, I, I just taught um, uh, Cheryl Harris's whiteness as property this morning. And part of what she's saying is racial subordination and ec economic exploitation arise hand in hand. Another way you can say that is colonialism gives rise to two major systems that are completely intertwined capitalism and racism, right? And to go back to that paradigm and say, oh, it's a class weapon. And as a class weapon in 2021, we're better off forming a multiracial movement of working families. We're all better off to fight racism and fight the very rich than we are sort of continuing to pit ourselves against each other. Last question, role of the courts. Short answer, the right has understood that its positions supporting the very rich are unpopular with democratic majorities. And so they've looked around and said, what is the least democratic? What is the institution of government that is most insulated from democratic politics? And they answer that question, the judiciary. I'm thinking here, if you wanna look up Clint Bolick, Clint Bolick as one of the sort of architects of this, writing in the 1980s, saying to corporations, take over the courts. And when you look at what Trump and Mitch McConnell just did, that's Clint Bolick's plan take over the courts. Part of the way they've taken over the courts is by the judges themselves becoming culture warriors. And so when I teach constitutional law, you know, I, you know, I periodize the constitution. We had a civil rights constitution, sort of a new deal civil rights constitution running from the thirties, let's say to the mid 1970s. From the mid 1970s to the present, we've been living in what I call the culture war constitution. The judges and justices are busy leading with culture war issues, rolling back equal protection for people of color, rolling back equal protection for women, fighting over equal marriage equality, fighting over transgender rights, weaponizing the First Amendment. They're doing all of that while they've also become the most business-friendly courts we've had since the era of Lochner. It's it, it, the court, I mean, it's just, you know, here's my, here's my you know, okay. unpack the courts progressive politics is doomed. Joe Biden and the Harris, you know, the Biden-Harris administration, they are doomed unless they unpack the courts because the courts have been rigged to simultaneously promote social strife, culture wars, while ruling on behalf of corporations. That is what those people will do. That's what they were put there to do, unpack the courts. Thanks for joining us, Professor. A bit of a different question, but you spoke briefly about your own familial background and biography, and I was wondering if you had any insight into what might have spurred you and your brother's differing self-views, and then also how you think that dichotomy might have influenced your own thinking about race and ethnicity. Hi, Professor. Thank you again for joining us. With the shift to the ethnicity conversation, mm -hmm. the dog whistle language, how do we combat it without it shifting to another form of the dog whistle? And can we? I want to start by saying, how do we do this without centering whiteness? And I want to say, we must center whiteness. We need not center white people. But we must make sure that, that white people have a role to play in the society we're trying to build or we won't get there. Right? The whole trap. Donald Trump wants America to believe that white people and people of color are locked into mortal combat and that everybody needs to choose a team. And a lot of the way the left responds is by saying, hell yeah, choose our team. Stand with people of color. Okay, but you got to be prepared then when a lot of white people and a lot of people of color say, 
I'm going to choose the team with power, the team that's esteemed, the team that promises the best life for my children. If you accept the frame that we are locked into mortal combat and we all have to choose a, a racial team, that's the future we're looking at, right? Whereas what I'm saying is center whiteness, because whiteness is the racial ideology that produces the belief that there are these fundamentally different races and that these fundamentally different races tell us who belongs, tell us all of these different characteristics. Like it is whiteness as a subordinating ideology that has produced blackness and brownness and yellowness. And if you want to fight for racial justice, if you want to fight for a human dignity of all of us, whatever our color, whatever our supposed categorical membership, you will fight whiteness. You will engage with whiteness because you're trying to center white people or be nice to white people, but because this is the ideology that has been weaponized against us all. Not that people in the white category feel the effects the same way the rest of us do, but it is whiteness as an ideology that has produced these incredible levels of violence in our society, most especially, though not exclusively, against communities of color. If you want to understand mass incarceration, you want to understand mass deportation, you want to understand systemic neglect from communities of color, that's whiteness as weaponized through our political system. Not whiteness in general, not white people in general, not white racism in general. It's dog whistle politicians in particular weaponizing whiteness as a class weapon that have driven mass incarceration, mass deportation, and systemic disinvestment. You also want to understand this, you know, these new books, Dying of Whiteness, right, in the, right, that's, that's looking at increasing suicide rates, including, you know, increasing rates of homicide, increasing rates, death rates from disease and alcoholism in white communities. You want to understand 400,000 people dead from a pandemic that Canada controlled, that New Zealand virtually eliminated, that's whiteness. And again, it's not to say, right, people of color die disproportionately, but so many people who maybe thought that they were better off because they were white, they died too. So yeah, we got to engage whiteness and not out of like, hey, right, okay, so that's that. Rigged by whom? That's such a great question. Rigged by the people who are actually doing well in the status quo, right? Rigged by people who experience this as power for themselves. And I should be Again, I mean, personify it, right? So that it's not just abstract. Tucker Carlson, that's who rigged it. And, and Rush Limbaugh and Alex Jones and even more. The Kochs, the Mercers, the Murdoch, the, the Heritage Foundation, right? I like, like Fox News, the GOP. And for a lot of those GOP folks, electoral offices are out to power for some people who are have pretty minimal skills otherwise, right? I'm thinking about the, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But she sees a route open to her, racial demagoguery. And if she's willing to demagogue and spew racist lies and spew conspiracy theories, she sees a route open to her and she does it. They're the ones who are pushing race hate for the ulterior motive of their own profit and power and position. And we, need, we should name it, right? Racism, right? Like, I think that part of the problem is that progressives have talked about systemic racism. We, this was a move that we made in the 80s and the 90s. And we were like, you know, there's a lot of racism without us identifying conscious racists. You know, we ought to do with institutional racism. I got that. But I think it's so important to understand the main forms of racism and the main violence of racism we're dealing with today are not simply inertial repercussions of the past, but are being actively pursued today for profit. And I don't mean 
profit of the private prison industry, although it's profit on that level too. I mean, the more general social profit of being able to rig government and the economy so that it helps you and it helps your billionaire buddies. Profit on that level. Bio, you know, I would say a couple of things. I think there are two big, the really big difference for me, I think, was growing up in Hawaii, you know, sort of multiracial, everybody's super confident about, super comfortable talking about race all the time. And yet without the racist beliefs that would have sort of beaten me down as a child. So growing up in Hawaii as half white, half Latino, I didn't have to deal with anti-Latino racism. The first time I changed my name from Haney, which was my father's surname, to include my mother's surname as well, Haney Lopez, I was a graduate student in Princeton and, uh, and I got a paper back and it, and it said, you know, this is ungraded. I couldn't read it. Is English your first language? Like I literally, by adding Lopez, I went from a student to unintelligible, like in an instant. Okay. So I think my bio, I think by being super comfortable talking about race, but also going through sort of my coming into adulthood without having to feel myself against the sort of pervasive racism of the mainland, it put me in a position, I think, you know, I mean, in fancier language, this liminal position, I was, you know, I was kind of betwixt and between inside and outside. Um, and I think that that's really made a difference. Certainly early on when I was thinking about like race as a social construction, and then later on when I realized that what I was really missing was the racism, right? That like race as a social construction as hierarchy and not simply as categorical boundaries. And then more recently, a, a willingness to say, and, and, and here this is, you know, I, I say this in all honesty, I think this is a big struggle. We're at a moment that my earlier self would have just been like so happy that it finally arrived. We're at a moment in which there's this huge sort of cultural awakening to white racism. And it's something that I sort of fought for years. And yet now that the moment's come, I find that I've shifted and I'm saying more and more, it's not that white racism isn't a problem. It's just not the problem we should lead with. Being outside of it a little bit, I'm a little bit more insulated from it. And I think being half white, you know, uh, Latino, I think I'm just in a different position. So yeah, I mean, biography is important. Part of the takeaway, though, is biography is important for all of us. And so all of us need to think, how does my story skew my understanding of, of hierarchy of social practices, right? That's, some, that's a question all of us should be asking. How do we combat this? I've already laid that out. I think we need to articulate a sort of a cross-racial solidarity message. Will there be an effort to hijack it? Already on Fox News, you're seeing stories that say Republicans are the true multiracial party of working class Americans. And the reason they're able to say that is because 30% of Latinos just voted Republican. And because many of the counties at the county level, the counties voting Republican, on average, less wealthy than the counties that vote Democrat. And they're taking these two facts and saying, we're the multiracial working class party. We must constantly fight against co-optation and hijacking of our language, of our insights by elite actors who are deeply, deeply cynical about democracy, who really fervently believe from the days of Barry Goldwater on in the, in the early 1960s, who fervently believe that to win power, they must lie to America. So of course, there will always be an effort to co-opt our language, to co-opt our ideals and our aspirations, and to turn them to the, to, to the service of the very rich. 
this sounds like hyperbole, but maybe we can see it clearly now. Our country is at risk from forces that are profoundly anti-democratic, who use the forms of democracy to hijack power for themselves. That's that's what we're up against, right? And so um, will there be a moment when we're no longer up against that? No. Like the story of American society, the story of almost all societies, is the story to push power downward and outward. And that's against the story in which in almost every society, the powerful few tend to reach out for more and more power. You know, I don't care if we're, you know, if we're talking India or Mexico or Germany or Russia or the United States or China, as power concentrates, the powerful few seek to concentrate and aggregate more and more power and wealth for themselves. And the struggle is to figure out a form of human society in which we can take that power and push it downward and outward to as many people as possible. And the fateful shackle in America, right? And you might say, oh, that sounds almost like the, the rhetoric of the American Revolution. And I think the fateful shackle, and it is, right? That's the insights. Those are the insights of the American Revolution. But the fateful shackle was, we didn't actually think all people meant all people. And now we realize if all people doesn't mean all people, then we're susceptible to intentional divide and conquer. And we risk losing our democracy. We risk losing our society. Frankly, at this point in human technological advancement, we risk losing our planet. We risk losing our planet if we cannot change the direction of capitalist consumption. And the only way we're going to change that is by actually recommitting to the ideal that all people are people and making that real, right? That's, that's the insight. Yeah, and this is a, this is a great uh, place. And with apologies to Joe, Jay, and John, we won't be able to, I won't be able to take their questions. It's a great place to end. I mean, that's a, you know, it's one of the reasons why you're not just a leading thinker of equality, but a leading thinker, period, and trying to help everybody figure out how do we become um, a more perfect union and achieve human potential within the framework in which we find ourselves. So we're very grateful that you've taken the time, although I just have to say you're chilling it out there in Hawaii. I really Thanks, appreciate yeah. it. Looking forward to the next opportunity. So let's all thank uh, Professor Ian Haney-Lopez. Thank you all. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. Great questions. Take care, everybody. See you next time. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the Duke Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit Duke Law on the web at law.duke.edu.